You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Tim Kelly, president of the BC Trappers Association. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few years. It's been that long already. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I, I think we met at like the start of COVID or something when we did our first episode. Okay, could be, uh, I guess time flies when we're having fun, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole period of memory loss and blanked out and everything. So, but uh, excited to have you back on. Uh, We're going to drill down on a more specific uh, topic affecting trappers in the province with, uh, with fishers and some proposed regulations and conservation concerns around, around fishers. So, this is going to be uh, really exciting to learn from you about what's going on. Before we get going, uh, how was your trapping season this past winter? Well, let's call it poor. <laughs> uh, when you got <laughs> presidential duties with the BCTA, I, I think I find less time to get on the trap line like I want to. That seems to be a later start each year, and that was a weird year for us. It got real warm in uh, January, and, and I just... Uh, I had a couple of problems with my machine and I, I kind of called it quits early. I, I kind of just got to a point where I said, I'm done, I'm done with the season. And, uh, I still washed out too. I got hit pretty hard with that, uh, a fall rainstorm a year and a half ago now. So half of my roads were washed out. I, I couldn't get to my trap line for a period of time and I still can't get to probably half my trap line. It's they're still rebuilding roads to, to get us in there. So, uh, it was only actually, I think late November, early December, before I could even access probably 80% of my trap line this year, I could only, you know, access a very small portion on the bottom. And it, it wasn't until the December that they opened up that little chunk of road. So I could at least get to some of it. So it was a, wow. It wasn't a great year. Like I'd hoped. Jeez. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. It's a uh, boy. The, you know, the more, the more I get into trapping, it, it's a, uh, it, it's different from hunting in the sense that there's so many more pieces and parts and snowmobiles and traveling and water and your tools and <clears throat> I don't know how many how many backtrack backtracking trips I made this year because I got to one set and it's like oh I left my my um, my setters back at the other set or like where's my hammer or something like that and you know, or my bait, my bait container, I left it at the, and I'm like, I'm like, geez, that's why these guys have like, everything's tied onto themselves or their, their toolkit and they got flagging tape on everything. Yeah, no, I, I actually have a cordless drill that is still sitting in the bush somewhere that I haven't found yet. I actually went back with a metal detector to look for it at the end of the season, but I have a relatively new Milwaukee cordless that's laying on the side of the trail somewhere. I, I'm actually pretty sure I know exactly where I left it, but, uh, by the time I got back, there was another layer of snow on top of it, and I, I haven't been able to find it. But, uh, um, yeah, it, oh, it, it happens to all of us all the time. So Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like, you know, sort of that's just the small-scale stuff. And, you know, then what you're talking about is like big-scale stuff. It's like either they're in their logging or you've had roads wash out and you're not in control of that. And it's just like, boy, it's just a, it's a lot. It's <clears throat> I would really you know, caution somebody about not being overly romantic about, you know, jumping in, you know, um, but to be a realist, there's a lot of great, great aspects of it, but be very real about, 
about the struggles <laughs> being I mean, a trapper. I, I think there's two good points that I see. First, I, I yes, the washouts and the logging and that sort of stuff is an unfortunate thing, and we can't change like a hunter where a hunter might decide to hunt somewhere else. Um, it's our trap line. We have to manage it. We manage it just like a farmer, just like you manage your property you own. We we have to work within the confines of what's on that trap line and, and how that plays out from year to year. Um, but I do think in the trapping community, it's a lot different than hunting and fishing because any one of us are standing here willing to share information with you. So yes, there's a lot of pieces to yeah. it, but we don't hide. There is no secret spots on my trap line that, that I'm not going to tell you where I, I do well and where I don't do well. And the secret lure I use, we're willing to share the recipe with you. Like there's, there's no secrets like that in our industry, like there is in fishing or hunting to say, there's no big secrets. We're, we're happy to see you succeed just as well as I succeed if I share what's working for me. Right. So I think that is, is unique about the trapping industry as well. That is, that is a really good point. Yeah. I like that. <clears throat> yeah. I like that. So yeah, <clears throat> it's uh, everybody's willing to help each other and, you know, even in just the course when I took it, you know, it was just like so much information and, and everything passed on. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's great. So yeah, I definitely, you know, would encourage anybody to get, you know, take the trappers course wherever you live. And, you know, I didn't buy a trap line. I don't own a trap line. I just met some people or whatever. And, and people helped me out and reached around and, you know, I found a trapper for two years now that was willing to just give me a, um, uh, an assistant trapper's authorization letter, and then I could just go out and, and uh, kind of do my thing and learn. And so that's available to people. You don't have to necessarily buy a trap line in order to start learning and getting involved. Yeah, we're in the, in the association, we're trying to ramp that up a little bit too. We're trying to find people that want to mentor a little bit more. We're trying to find people that, you know, need help, uh, willing to help, willing to lease out that part of their trap line that they don't necessarily use all of it. Maybe they're, you know, not quite as mobile as they used to be. And so they're willing to, you know, fraction off a part of their trap line and say, hey, go ahead, you can trap this half or, or this quarter section or something like that and, and get more people in the landscape and let them get their feet wet and see whether trapping really is for them. Because I think, like you say, you did hit it on the nail to say there's a, a lot of pieces, a lot of equipment, a lot of investment that goes into getting into trapping. And, and it's it's hard to not jump in with two feet and, and really spend a lot. No, for sure. And mm -hmm. uh, if you got an excavator and you know how to fix and repair roads and put culverts in, <laughs> give Tim Kelly a call and maybe he'll sign you up as an assistant trapper. <laughs> I don't know. On the, on the um, south coast here, it's so steep. I think we need more than an excavator in a couple of couple hours time to fix <laughs> some of the stuff that they're working on. I mean, they're major, yeah, major rebuilds on road. I, I, you know, if you haven't been to the coast and see with some of the damage that that storm did to the south coast like it's it's one thing to see the stuff on the coast but in the back country so many logging roads are are just every bridge is washed out and and they're they're major washouts it's Unreal. not just little stuff to fix there's some some areas of this you know south coast that just probably won't get accessed again for years to come until uh, it makes economic sense to go back in there for some reason because it's you know some major major damage to some spots wow mm. wow 
Well, hopefully uh, over the next few years and, and uh, when you kind of step down at the end of the month as the, as the president, you get a little bit more time and maybe find a way into some of your back corners in your trapping line. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. So, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Community-Minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Get ready to experience a different kind of car dealership with Alpine Toyota. Their team of experienced professionals is dedicated to providing the best possible customer service. Plus, they're proud to give back to the community and conservation with support of organizations like Ducks Unlimited, as well as us here at the Hunter Conservationist. If you haven't already, send them an email, drop them a phone call, just pop in with some coffees, say, hey, thanks for supporting those guys, and we love listening to them and all the great conversations and information that we get over there at the Hunter Conservationist. So we got another great one lined up today. I'm excited for this one. So as always, huge shout out to the folks over at Alpine Toyota. You bet. Thanks, Alpine. Fisher Conservation and Trapping in British Columbia. Um, there's a lot going on right now. And um, Tim, I want to learn an open book, uh, as, as our listeners are. I want to learn from the trapper's perspective, um, you know, what what's happening, what's what's the issue on the table, and maybe start us, <clears throat> start us off where trappers in BC are. Uh, what they're being faced with, and then let's understand how you got there with respect to fisher trapping. So I guess the state of the industry today can be best described to say government is looking at some proposed regulation changes to put um, some traps out of commission possibly, or what we would call an exclusion plate out of box. And that basically... We actually use it already on another species, um, weasels. So because we use a rat trap on weasels, uh, they're not a powerful, big enough trap for other species. So we use a box and we put a hole in the box that limits it to weasels or smaller animals that will get into that, but it prevents a larger animal like a marten uh, from getting into that box. So they're doing the same sort of a thing with, with Fisher. They believe that um, Fisher declines in this province are... are red-listed now um, and to protect those ones that we might have as bycatch in our boxes they're looking to make us have to put exclusion plates on all of our martin boxes um, with another hole that's you know a little bit larger that will allow a martin in but it won't allow a fisher and that basically just comes down to um, you know makeup of a, of a fisher they've you know tested the skull sizes and they have a, a measurement that they we can, we can have a box that's big enough for a Martin to squeeze his head in, but not big enough for a Fisher to get through um, and prevent Fisher from getting in our some of our sets. Um, unfortunately, that is cause for concern to the trappers because we could be talking, you know, tens of thousands of boxes need to be changed to put these exclusion plates on. And in our calculations or our numbers, we're talking potentially 30 fishers 35 fishers saved a year from bycatch um and and the cost of those forty thousand boxes to produce put them out on the trap lines and, and work them is is probably in the multi-million dollars to the trappers or to the association and the members 
MCTA. So because of the, um, so one, I'll, let's, let's describe red listing because that's a provincial list, listing. We're not talking like a federally endangered species like, like the caribou. Um, so one, I'll get you to sort of just <clears throat> sort of explain what red list it is. And then are fishers prohibited to target them for trapping across their entire range in BC or, or just part of it? Well, we might want to go back up to start at the beginning of the time or, or the beginning of what okay. I understand with this, okay. because there's kind of changes that have happened along the way. So if we go back to 2003, uh, Fisher in the province were red listed back in 2003. Uh, there was a study on the uh, status of Fisher in BC back in 2003, and that created them to become red listed at that point in time. The BCTA fought and removed that red listing. So in 2003, we had a one to two year period where it went red listed and we were not able to harvest Fisher anymore. Uh, but we fought that. And, and red listing red listing is a provincial designation yes that means they're like at risk of disappearing is that correct and so bc maintains their okay. own list of red listed species that may or may not follow uh national species so bc has a a, a center for, uh, bc center for data conservation and then on those we can find in bc whatever species we have and, and whether they're considered red yellow or blue listed uh, blue listed be not a concern. Yellow is is a concern that they monitor. Red listed is closer to a you know possible extinction um, type of a listing, and, and really want to protect it. So okay. we fought that okay. we fought that red listing in two thousand three. The data and the science and the paper uh, talked a lot about. Um, one area that they, you know, they kind of took a small area of the province and they, and they got a population estimate per thousand square kilometers. And they took that and basically used a paintbrush and put it across the entire province and said, well, this is how many fisher there are. That meets the criteria to now be red listed because of that. The Trappers Association fought it because this, you know, the science in the paper wasn't complete. I'm not going to really say it was bad science. I'm going to say there was assumptions made and we fought those assumptions saying we don't that's not what we see on the ground trappers refuted it and we won and the red listing was reversed okay okay yeah that's um you know that's an interesting dilemma in wildlife management is you know especially here in bc where there's not a lot of money is trying to make these big landscape scale decisions off a study that someone did at a very small, you know, watershed scale, a regional scale, and then like you said, apply that to, I mean, that's, I wouldn't say it would be half the entire area of British Columbia, but you're talking like 40% of the area of BC that this kind of like effects, right? At that point in time, it affected all of BC. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to oh, okay. say at that point okay. in time in 2003, mm. there was one species of fisher in the province. And we're going to fast forward a little bit mm. today where we now have two different species. But that particular study was done for all of fisher and all of BC. Um, and the trappers at the time had told them, you know, we didn't really have input into the study to say you're studying fisher in an area that's not really known to be fisher habitat, not known to be good quality fisher. Um, I believe it was probably a study that was done based on the area and the money that was provided for that area to do study work in that area. 
So it wasn't necessarily that we picked that area to say this is good or bad fisher habitat. It was, this is where the money pot is. So let's study where the money pot allows us to study, if you will, right? Okay. Okay. No, I get, I get that. Yeah. So, I mean, what you would normally want to do is pick different types of fisher habitat, you know, poor, medium, good, and excellent fisher habitat, figure out what the density is in each one of the habitat types, and then extrapolate that to that similar habitat types across a, a bigger area. But what you're saying is they just kind of like picked a marginal fisher habitat, probably came up with a low density number and then said, that's the density of fishers across all of the province. Yep. Okay. And so then if we fast forward to, um, I'm not sure what year the forest practices board complaint was made in right now, but we, a couple of trappers made a complaint to the forest practices board because they were seeing habitat loss on their trap lines in the Nazco area. And so they, they asked the forest practices board to investigate their complaints of not leaving behind good fisher habitat. You know, fisher were still, you know, of concern in the province. They weren't red listed, but still a concern. They, they, they take a little more habitat and specialized habitat than uh, some other species. And, and the trapper felt that there was a disregard for protecting the fisher in his area. Um, and the Forest Practices Board kind of ruled in the trapper's favor, said the government wasn't really using the tools available to it at the time to try to mitigate that. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know, I think I've seen anything that you've talked about recently, but we've actually seen some recent change in the Forest Practices Code to help us out on that front. And that was basically at the time, the Forest Practices uh, regulations said you know, you had to consider habitat and wildlife and all these other things unless it unduly affected the timber supply. So industry right. could kind of argue at the time saying, well, no, sorry, we can't protect that fisher habitat because it's part of the timber supply. We need to keep the mill moving. Um, and so, you know, they were allowed to continue to, to destroy and take out this fisher habitat that in particular in the Nazco area is probably the highest concentrated fisher populations we have in BC. Hmm. So... So the fisher, um, like describe what like ideal or, or, or super quality fisher habitat would be like old growth forests, riparian areas, like what would be, it's obviously forest that's being logged. So. Yeah, I, I think old growth to an extent, but I think also old growth right now today is a bad term. Um, Everybody looks at old growth as being the big old trees. Um, and at some point in time, a forest gets past mature and the forest floor becomes uh, void of structure. And I, I think the most important thing to talk about is, is a mature forest that has structure to it. If you don't have okay. Okay. underbrush, if you don't have dead and decaying logs of varying sizes and degrees and things on the forest floor, you're past... Um, what all the small animals and critters at the bottom of the food chain need to survive. You know, so you can have a really old forest that you might call old growth. That's actually not really great for wildlife. You kind of need a successional forest. You need a bit of everything um, to help okay. support a healthy ecosystem is, is more what we look at than we look at the specific forest terms. You need kind of a healthy ecosystem that has a mix of, of multiple forest levels. I think. 
Right. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So the <clears throat> Forest Practices Board found that essentially they were logging and not leaving patches and structures and um, connectivity corridors and all those types of features that you know would be in best management practices for Fisher and and then where did that take us? So up in now we get up to 2020 and so in 2020 um, uh, it was proposed or pushed to the CDC um, to change and create two species of fisher in our province. They now have a Colombian fisher uh, for the southern half of the province, which is basically um, south of 7B. A little bit of 7B encompasses the southern part of the province, but the Colombian fisher habitat um, is, is the southern part of the province. And I think, like you kind of said earlier, that probably takes up two-thirds of the province is considered fisher, um, Colombian fisher range. Um, of course, they don't inhabit on the island. They don't inhabit the south coast, but anywhere north of that, there's there's certain features that uh, support fisher habitat in through the interior okay uh when they created that second species of fisher the columbian was considered red listed because they figured there was only between 299 and 517 fisher in that columbian range of fisher and that created a red listing for the fisher uh, columbian species of fisher subspecies of fisher And that, that area of the province is also, uh, if, if people are familiar with BC, is where um, f few things have hit the forests. Um, so, geez, it was about 20 years ago, there was like the largest outbreak of mountain pine beetles that I think have ever been documented in North America. And then they salvage logged all of that from you know the whole central interior all the way up to you know prince george area uh, extensive logging and then there was extensive wildfires all through there and like i think it was like 2016 17 18 around around then and again logging operations went in and salvaged a tremendous amount of that vast areas up there look like moonscapes that's where we had moose populations um, crash a, as well and that's that's all right in the heart of the Columbia subpopulation is it not yes definitely yeah. definitely the heart of it and I think for any of your listeners that have a, an inkling to see the destruction that that happened over time may not be aware that Google um, satellite has a time-lapse feature so you can click on Google and you can do a time lapse feature and you can go back and look at the scan landscape and see what it looked like over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And you can see the clear cuts that showed up, um, how they got developed and that sort of stuff. So it's a, you know, it's an interesting tool to sit back and watch that landscape change um, from space um, and see how drastically some of those areas have been um, affected by industry. Okay. Okay. Now the the red listing of the Columbia um, subpopulation of the Fisher was based on <clears throat> the total population estimate that you for for that entire geographic area of the province that you said was like 
200 and something to a range of 200 and the low end of 500 kind of on the high end? Yes, that's that was their estimate um, for that entire range. Um, up to today, we cannot actually see the genetics behind the subspecies. Um, and, and I think that's important to understand because the science that was used to make that decision you know, we haven't been able to view that science or ask to see that science. It was it was provided, but you know, recently actually the uh, Vancouver Island subspecies of wolverine is no more. So recent scientific data, uh, further data and study of that subspecies of wolverine that was you know known to be for for many years on the island is no longer. They're they're saying the uh, species of wolverine on the island is the same as the species of wolverine we have on the mainland. There's no longer a subspecies. So, you know, I, I think that, right. you know, it's it's a big scientific argument sometimes what constitute a subspecies, but we also have to, you know, look at the management requirements when we, when we come up with a subspecies and say, do we really need to have a subspecies? Is Are we trying to protect something that's really needed or or is it the same as the northern species and and uh, you know when yeah. you get into the more yeah basics of it, a... I, I think it's kind of simple that if you know a fisher from the north and a fisher from the south would mate there's no distinguishable differences if i put two fisher side by side and showed them to you you couldn't tell me which was different there's no real either physical differences or or look differences between the two fisher and and that's you know that just in the whole field of taxonomic classification in wildlife you know there's the there's the theory of lumping and splitting um subspecies uh and then there's variants which are like uh variations of a subspecies generally they're based on either some distinguishing behavioral aspect their distinct geographic area where they live, which generally, as I understand it, if they're isolated to a specific geographic area that they've started to evolve and they have different physical body features. Like for example, you talked about the Wolverine. So they originally thought the Wolverine on Vancouver Island was isolated. It wasn't swimming back and forth, you know, to the mainland and they over time shifted slightly from wolverines on the mainland maybe they were smaller maybe they were bigger whatever it happened to be and so scientists gave them a, a, a subspecies classification but then subsequent science and dna work and you know all and they do a lot of like measurements of the animals to see if like they've got different skull sizes different morphological features different behaviors and, and then if they're like well no they're not um, then the science tends to swing the other way and then they, they lump them back together with the mainland ones. So, so in this case where we currently sit in BC is they split the fisher into two subpopulations. But what you're saying is you don't know or haven't been able to get your hands on the science that says this is why they're distinctly two different subspecies. Correct, yep. Which maybe they are, you know, like you said, science, science may prove to us that they are. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, I think an important part of the Together for Wildlife strategy today that BC's adopted and moving forward is open science and, and 
you know, that's that's kind of all that we're looking for is to say, let's see, the, let's see the science. If you said that the science is there, let's share it. Why? Why is it? Why is his secret to share that science with us so that we can see that, uh, you know, distinction that was made in, in scientific means to, to show that subspecies, right? So what's mm. what's the second subspecies and what is the status of them population and listing? The northern population is still open for harvesting and, and not red listed. So still would be, you know, fisher have always been red listed just because they're like a wolverine. They take a little more specialized habitat, uh, that sort of stuff. So still, you know, a yellow listed species in the province, but not of concern in any way. So we still openly harvest wolverine or uh, fisher in the north. So that's, that's, that's the, is that the boreal? Yes. Yeah. Sub population or subspecies yep. okay so that is that exclusively on the east side of the rocky mountains in northeastern bc so the boreal forest alberta plateau or does it come over onto the west side of the rockies at all i do not believe it comes on the west side that's what they kind of distinguished is saying that that rockies are the distinguishing land feature that's not allowing yeah, that's what the maps look not like. allowing the species to intermingle between the two uh, apparently um you know um I, you know i kind of think it depends where the species is present on either side but yes that seems to be the distinguishing feature that's keeping the the boreal and the columbian separate okay yeah a couple years ago we had dr matt scrafford on um he's a wolverine researcher with the wildlife society of canada and he was talking that the boreal forest in the north is amazing wolverine habitat and he goes it doesn't matter where you go in the boreal forest it's good wolverine habitat <laughs> where when you come south like where we are in the kootenays now all of a sudden it's like you got rocky mountains and rock and valley bottoms and like all these different habitat types where the wolverines are confined to a very, very small area in the alpine, subalpine, montane habitats. So they have, like the whole land base isn't, is in good wolverine habitat. And what are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that kind of like a parallel, do you think, for the fisher in the boreal forest? Is like, life is pretty good if you just go anywhere in the boreal forest? I think so. And then I think if you come down to the uh, Colombian, it would be probably opposite for wolverine. They don't do well in the high uh, country. They do better in the valley bottoms, lower snow conditions, oh, that sort of stuff. So I think it's probably more okay, okay. more flipped on the on the Colombian uh, species when, okay. it, when we come down and talk about mm. it compared to Wolverine. Because Wolverine need that deep snow, and they can survive in that deep snow a lot better than a fisher can. You know, a fisher is closer to a mart and needs more. Okay. Yep. Martin Martin will still you know, go under the snow as, as much, but I, yes, it's they're definitely more prevalent in the valley bottoms. Fisher are. So do you do you have kind of some numbers readily at hand there or that you can recall uh, from like what in comparison population wise in BC what would the boreal subspecies be in numbers compared to? no i don't have those in front of me what uh what they estimate the northern population would be at okay 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 but obviously robust enough in population numbers and available habitat that they haven't tripped like a 
a red a red list Correct, yeah. in in northeastern BC. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so the use of the exclusion plates, closed trapping seasons, all that kind of stuff, that's not an issue for trappers in the north. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Oh, this is really interesting. So I've only ever seen one fisher in the wild and it was actually in the Northeast, uh, on my way out of the Cacho heading into Fort Nelson and it went across the road in front of me and it was like, that's the biggest Martin I've ever seen. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> like, yeah, they're, they're sort of getting close to the size of a, like an, of an otter. Like they're, they're pretty, yep. pretty good size, big bums on them. Yep. Only ones that'll attack a, um, porcupine. Porcupine, that's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, an, an okay, interesting so species. You know, I, th I think it's, you know, and, and I think it shows that trappers are concerned about fisher. It's, it's not that we don't want to protect them and make sure that they thrive on the landscape. We just kind of not sure that you know we continue to be the only scapegoat or the only lever pulled by government in terms of changes to protect fisher. Well, and it's a. Uh it's a theme that's very frustrating for people in the outdoor pursuits in British Columbia is we have these natural resource industries where time and time again, we see them significantly impacting wildlife populations and, and creating conservation concerns. But the lever that's always pulled is to shorten a hunting season or close a trapping season or put restrictions on, you know, or on trappers or, I mean, we've seen the same thing with um, uh, salmon and steelhead fishing, right? Like there's the commercial fleets, you know, up there doing their thing. And then all of these federal regulations on the recreational fishers inland on, on the river. And it's just a... Uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just like you can't go after big business, but let's do something. And and at the end of the day, what the fisher are facing are these massive landscape alterations, primarily from logging and salvaging wildfire areas. But I also think we have to caution that potentially that's not as big of a concern to fisher as they may think it is. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. I, I think that we have some... Un unfold that. Well, there's been some recent data. So, I mean, the the second piece after the red listing, so then there was kind of another piece more recently that, that put out a paper that talked about trappers going to push Fisher to extinction. And so that paper talked about, I don't have the number in front, I think it was around 15 years if, if trappers changed that we would cause them to go extinct. But I think the... Oh, I, I saw that on... On your guys's meeting if i remember it the projection was with no trapping and nothing else changes the fisher the columbian fisher had like 30 years yes and it was like if you allowed trapping even with closed fisher the number of incidental catches would mean the fishers are like gone in 10 years or something like that yeah i think it was 15 if was, we just it was very shocking. okay very shocking yes. um and, and that's, I think that's the troubling part of that paper to us is if we do nothing, they're still going to go extinct in 37 years. If we do nothing for trapping, if we totally shut trapping down, there's no more trapping, no more bycatch, no nothing on the landscape to, to capture them, they're still going to go extinct in 37 years. So I think there's either a flaw in the paper 
or we better change what's going on on the landscape real quick because we're going to push Fisher to extinction. Um, and I think just like every other species, it shows us that it's a whole lot more expensive to recover a species than it is to protect it from the start, right? When we get to that point of being very close to be extirpated, it, it costs a whole lot more money to bring it back on the landscape and, and recover the population than it is to, uh, yeah. you know, kind yeah. of make some protection yeah. for them now. So what, what else with the Columbia population um does the trappers association like disagree or concerned about where where the evidence is pointing the government decisions on on trapping box regulations so there's a couple more recent papers um that have come out one is is um, in the colombian range somewhere they did some and if we get into right into the numbers the number that they used across the it come out of the Williston Basin as the basis that where they used it to study the population in the province and, and call it uh, the population when they come up with the 300 to 517 individuals. And at that particular area in the Williston Basin, they come up with about 8.8 fisher per thousand square kilometers. They have a new study that was completed or some new data. They were studying the population and it's got upwards of 35.7 fisher per thousand square kilometers. And that would be closer to what the trappers say. We have lots of parts of this province, like the Nazco, that have really good fisher numbers. Um, instead of the, the low of 8.8 .8 that they put that paintbrush across the whole province and said, nope, this is what the population is everywhere. Just like deer, moose, elk, bears, all the species in the landscape, we have definitely have areas that support certain animals better than others. Um, the other thing that I think that we really see is, is some of those areas that they're doing these studies in good numbers have a pretty substantial impact from forestry and fires and things like that on the landscape and the fisher are still doing pretty well or pretty good numbers oh interesting so i think that interesting yeah uh, because that's kind of what their study originally said if you impact the landscape by 10 or 20 percent your chance of occupation drops way off we're saying no you can still have good numbers and, and maybe the population is not quite as bad as it was. And, and, and I think, like you say, we need to study multiple areas to come out with what is good, you know, maybe say low, uh, medium and good quality habitat for Fisher. But we also have to study it over a few different periods of time because Fisher are cyclical on a cycle, just like most species are. So if the, yeah squirrel yeah. and hare populations are doing well the fisher populations may be doing better but we could be studying them at the low end of the cycle as well and, and taking that 8.8 .8 per thousand square kilometers and saying well if we studied that at the low end of the cycle are we is the population really that low yeah that's a that's a really good point and that really speaks to what a lot of scientists talk about is is like long-term data sets you know and and a lot of wildlife, you know, scientists will tell you that 10 years even, you know, say from a population decline to, you know, is the population trending upwards? They'll tell you like even, you know, after 10 years of data of monitoring them, you're just starting to get onto the doorstep that they might be able to detect a signal or more reliably predict what's happening to a population. So 
um, these little snapshots that you're kind of talking about, like a little study here and a little chunk there kind of thing, aren't really speaking to to like our, our long-term understanding of, like you said, the ups and ups and downs and, and be basing it on sort of the a 10-year average versus, like you said, if you happen to count your fishers on the low cycle and then never go back and, and, and calibrate that again, that's, that's problematic. I, I can see that. <coughs> and I think for us, the easiest part to predict or to show that is our annual harvest. Fisher are one species that we have had to compulsory report for a number of years now. So we have a pretty stable harvest of Fisher. It's not been declining like they indicate the population has been doing. The overall harvest has been pretty stable when the, when the season was open. And even the bycatch is pretty stable in terms of what it's doing. So anybody that understands a population and understanding that we can only trap for a certain period of the year unless you're putting a whole lot more traps out for a longer period of time, if the population is declining, we're not going to have a consistent, you know, pretty steady harvest. There's definitely ups and downs, but it's not, it's not dropping off drastically. It's not, you know, there is ups and downs and some of those ups and downs could actually be when the trapper sells, not necessarily when they harvested it. Um, so there, there are, you know, little nuances there we could do it, but overall, if you just take a 20 year number and divide it by 20 years, it stays pretty flat. So it, it's, you know, the population can't be doing that, that bad or dropping that drastically if that number is staying the same. And another interesting thing I saw when I, I saw that graph and, and the explanation was, is there was the fur prices were overlaid on top of that. And there wasn't really substantial changes in fisher catch in the province or in the central part of the the province with fur prices and everybody would think it's like oh fisher prices are up um so let's focus more on trapping fishers and then you see a spike in you know in a particular period of time of more fishers caught that didn't really see didn't really come across in bc's data set it's like trappers were just on average catching about the same amount every year whether they were worth a lot or the prices were really depressed and that that to me kind of speaks again to what you're saying about population levels. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's exactly it. And I think it kind of shows that probably overall in our province, fisher are not targeted. Most of the fisher are coming, you know, they, they, they come and they get into the smaller traps, the 120 traps, but the trappers are not really going out looking for fisher. They're just picking them up in areas where they find their Martin or on the onset of the Martin areas type of thing. So they're not, not really a, a highly targeted species in our province um, overall. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they definitely seem to be in northern Alberta. They seem to be like a, a good target species for trappers in the boreal forest of northern Alberta. And that could be related to here to say too, like typically I think you're going to find if you have good fisher numbers, the martin numbers are not there. Uh, good fisher number pushes out the martin. So it's kind of one or the other, you know, a guy's getting a few fisher uh, or he's getting Martin or, you know, maybe he gets a mix, but he's, you know, there's not a lot of either. So he's just kind of getting a few of each, um, you know, but okay. each, each trap line is going to be different. And that's where it's, it's our job to manage our trap lines and realize what we have and <clears throat> the signs we get as we trap 
how much more we can trap or how much we, when we should stop trapping a certain species because we're getting too many adult females. That That's our ultimate goal in our, in our trapping management is to limit the number of adult females we catch our breeding stock. Yep. Yep. Now, if, tell, tell me if this, um, if, if this is correct. So one of the, <clears throat> One of the inputs into making the population prediction for the Colombian uh, subspecies was <clears throat> this model that said if you've got <clears throat> a certain percentage of your landscape has been logged, then you have this much decline in density of fishers. And it was like this really steep curve. So if you let's just say if you logged five percent of your area then you lost two percent of your fisher population but if you logged ten percent of your area you lost twenty percent of your fishers and then like it was a really sharp decline and that was used to kind of extrapolate across the landscape based on how open and how much forest was left but trappers are saying that's not translating to what we're seeing on our trap lines. There's some pretty good fisher populations, even <clears throat> even when 30% of my trap line's been logged. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It was a very steep curve. It, it started, I think, by 20 or 30%. Your, your, your chance of occupation in that area was slim to none. So, you know, but that's not what the trappers are seeing on the ground. There, there's a trapper that's, you know, probably got... Um, evidence of eight different fisher on his trap line in a, in a couple hundred square kilometer area. So if you look at those numbers, that should be the entire population for a thousand square kilometers. And he's got it in a very small pocket of his trap line. Um, and that's mm -hmm. one trap line of, of a few around and, and government says there should be no fisher there. So it, it, it uh, doesn't jive with what we're seeing on the ground. And, you know, and I think that's what makes the trappers angry is we're not inputted or consulted on a lot of this information. We're not coming to us as the underground people that are seeing this all the time and, and, you know, providing some input on saying, where should you study Fisher? Where, where are the numbers? And, and, you know, maybe how do your numbers compare in a study this year to what we've seen in the last five years? Is this a better year? Is it a worse okay. year? You know, what are we seeing on the ground um, from year to year? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the nuances that I'm picking up just, you know, slowly getting into trapping that I, that I just so much have so much respect for trappers that have been doing it for a long time is you, you're familiar with this very small piece of ground year after year after year of decade after, after decade, you've got this, this wealth of like local knowledge you know, to where you can say, oh, I remember, you know, like the winter and there was a rain and then there was a crust and, um, you know, the squirrels did this and the marten couldn't do that. And then the next year, you know, this happened. And and I, I just find that that's so valuable at that fine scale. Uh, and then when you start adding that up on trapper after trapper after trapper, you'd start to become like large scale you know, in, in that understanding, but there's this, I don't know if you, if you see this and I, I think this seems to be one of your frustrations is, is it's like this, this local understanding is not, is, it's not valid. 
like a scientific study is valid, traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous people is valued and input that, but someone like yourself, it's like, thanks, but our data shows something different than what you're saying. Especially recently, I, I think trappers were consulted a lot more and, and I'm glad that you hit on the indigenous knowledge type of thing, because I think that trappers understand indigenous knowledge because we don't have the multi-generations of knowledge that the indigenous do, but we're starting to pick up, you know, especially when you have a few trappers that have maybe a third generation working a trap line. It's hard for you or me to trap my trap line. Even when I get 20 or 30 years experience, I could definitely tell you what's going on in that trap line for the last 20 or 30 years or however long I've been trapping it. But indigenous have multiple generations doing the same thing, passing that knowledge from one to the next. And and so same thing, if you happen to be trapping your grandfather's trap line, now you're going to have a whole lot different understanding of the stories he used to tell, where he used to catch them, the numbers he used to catch compared to what you catch today. Um, but that's, you know, the start of indigenous knowledge is, is that, that intimate knowledge we have of the trap and how we manage it. So where this has left the trappers that have trap lines within the range of the Colombian subspecies is one, they can't catch them. So if you do catch one accidentally, it's an incidental, you have to report it and it's taken away from you. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't get utilized. <clears throat> and the other aspect is, is the government has proposed a few regulations and restrictions on, on the smaller traps as well as some bigger traps from what I've seen to prevent uh, a fisher from being accidentally caught uh, in a particularly a martin set or or a lynx or a bobcat set as well when they're targeting bigger traps like 330s and stuff so you were mentioning that earlier you know being a being a big issue for the trappers because of the, um, the cost um, I know I built four of those Fisher exclusion boxes last year and it took me all day just to make four of them uh, and they're a little harder to service when you're out there and um, you know and, and 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 whatnot so so where where do you go from here where what are you trying to do what's what's your goal what are you trying to advance from both the trapper and fisher conservation perspective well I think First, we actually had some good movement with government recently. So we do have a Fisher Science Workshop coming up. Um, still in the planning department stages of that, but that was a request oh, of the awesome. BC Trappers Association to bring the scientists to the table, uh, bring scientists from the trapping community's side or opinions, and bring everybody to the table and try to get to a a point where we can agree upon the holes in the science and where we need to go and, and what we need to do to sell everybody on the science. Cause I think trappers are totally behind the science. If you can answer our questions and say, you know, how does that, that Fisher density number that you created in the Williston apply across the province? How come it doesn't apply on my trap line when I see more, if we can answer those questions, trappers will be 110% behind the change if it's needed. Right now, we just kind of say there's holes in the science that we we don't have answers to that we've asked. 
and when we think we have valid questions because of our knowledge of the landscape right we, we think that we have uh, good things to bring to the table and and want to see those answers to those questions right one of one of the pieces that see, seems to be missing here is BC went through a number of exercises that were like several years long. There were pilot projects around the province um, where they were looking at cumulative effects on the landscape. And so if people aren't familiar, you would pick like, let's just say a watershed. <clears throat> and normally we might think of something like, <clears throat> well, how much of that watershed has been logged? And somebody else might come along and say, well, we're just interested in um, how much of it is that area, that watershed is in a transmission line, how much is in a gravel pit. And everybody's kind of doing things separately. All of these things are getting approved, little pieces, but nobody was taking the big picture into account. And so these, these projects were stepping back and looking at the cumulative impacts of everything on a landscape. And then picking certain species. I know there was one done in the central interior that looked at Martin and said, okay, everything that's happened on the landscape in this study area, logging, mining, road building, highways, transmission lines, gravel pits, <clears throat> fires, everything. Um, cumulatively, how is that all stacked up? And how has the Martin population responded to that? And then what they do is then they model into the future and say, well, if nothing changes and we just carry on doing all of this stuff, what's going to happen to the fisher population or martin population in 50 years? If we cut back on, you know, logging by half, what would that do to the martin population in 50 years? And, and they, they develop these different base case scenarios to make decisions going into the future. And with respect to the fisher, they're, <clears throat> they're concerned about the conservation status. They're very concerned about like sort of coming down on the trappers, you know, by the, like the one study you said, well, if they, if you kept trapping, even with the rate of accidental catches, they're going to be gone in 15 years. But is anything being done that you know of on a large landscape scale that's looking at all the cumulative impacts? incidental catch of trapping being one, but everything else and saying, how was all of that impacting Fisher into the future? And what would that look like for Fisher if some of those landscape practices were changed? I don't believe they've done a study to summarize that. I mean, we've asked that question, what, uh, you know, we asked that question to how long, you know, if, if forestry stayed the same or you changed it till they would go extinction and we weren't given an answer to that. Um, I, I do think that there's, bright light on the horizon to say uh, the Together for Wildlife strategy, um, the new uh, regional tables that are being developed and, and the removal of that unduly affected timber supply in, in FERPA uh, being the Forest Range Practices Act is encouraging to us that that's going to be considered in the future, that new um, forest management plans are going to have to take all that into effect. So trappers can come to the table and ask those questions and they have to be addressed in those kind of plans and, and looking at the bigger ecosystem, I guess, is, is the term that seems to be coming more prevalent these days to say, we're looking at the big picture, the ecosystem picture and saying, yes, 
I truly believe that we can still log, we can still have industrial development on the landscape if it's spaced out and done in a manner that, that you know, has some sort of um, base level of, of populations to say we're going to maintain those base numbers or, you know, we're, we're targeting to keep a number at, at this or a population at this amount. And those are how we make our decisions and saying, um, maybe you're allowed to clear cut, but if you don't clear cut, you can go bigger cuts because you're not affecting those animals quite as badly, right? So I, I think that there's a, a shift coming in, in how we manage in, industry and, and we keep an eye on all of that in the future. And, and we get to bring those to the table and say, well, have you studied the impact on Fisher? Have we have we done that? I, I know that they're talked about some best management for, for logging in Fisher in terms of leaving some patches you know they, they they look at a clear cut and see how good the habitat was for fisher and and maybe they leave some and they have to leave some more uh, coarse woody debris piles but i kind of look at that and say you've still taken a population reduced it by 60 or 70 percent instead of maybe 90 percent. so you know you're still you, you give up 10 percent where you're forcing trappers to give up 100 percent almost probably yeah 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 um so ultimately moving forward discussions with the province um digging into the science a little bit more hopefully maybe you'll be able to trigger some more you know studies to fill in some of the gaps and the knowledge of um you know the population predictions and stuff where where would you like to see this all end up for for trappers and for fisher conservation like what what would you see as a really good win-win outcome for trappers and the future of fishers that we have a target population number and we can assess how we get to that target at some point in the future okay. you know to, to say and hopefully that target is a is a harvestable population of fisher at some point that we, you know, we come up with a number and we say, okay, if this is the population, this is what we need in order to maintain a harvest. And as long as we can maintain a harvest and keep that population at a certain level, we can continue to harvest. So I guess our ultimate goal is a harvestable population, but I think our first step is to come up with a, an agreement on where the population is and then an agreement on where do we want the population to be. And Okay. So that, that that really seems to be a fundamental theme that i'm hearing from the bc trappers association is is it sort of like we're not really confident or you're not really confident that that is a really good base assessment of where the fisher population in the columbia range is at right now let's get to the step to the stage where everybody goes we're comfortable with the data we're comfortable with you know, some different subunits or whatever, and our population is X. And everybody's like, that's pretty good. And we'd like it to be Y. What do we need to do to get to population Y level? That that really seems to be your focus, right? Is like, let's, first of all, be more comfortable with that, that population estimate. And what I'm hearing is that three to 500 just doesn't look right to you guys no not when you look at what our harvest is like when you look at that you know them saying it's three to five hundred and i think our um, harvest rate when it was open was 
they said it was 160 in the paper, but I think our data shows it's about 70. But even if the it was their number of 160, then really if the population is is only 500, we should wipe it out in a few years. Like it, it just doesn't really drive to the trappers, and we just don't see how you could harvest that many if it's that population. Like you just you would have to really put a lot more effort in a short period of time to, to take those kind of numbers out of the population if that's all there was. Yeah, and especially if that was like you were saying earlier, that's kind of like a sustained harvest year after year, then you know the harvest from one year didn't cause a huge population decline because nobody caught one the, the following year. You're just sort of seeing roughly the same catch, meaning that the trapper harvest is not really... A driver of the population yeah, really yeah exactly i think it and if you look at most things that way I, I mean you know when we talk about salmon it's a little bit easier but i think it's pretty easy to show those years that the salmon aren't doing well in the rivers you've got to spend a lot of time to get your catch or uh, the commercial fishermen aren't catching very many fish for for the time and effort they're putting into it and, and yet we're seeing a pretty steady stable catch so you know it just doesn't make sense to us that the population can be in such a decline if our numbers are staying relatively stable over time. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, just to kind of shift gears a little bit on the theme, <clears throat> anytime something kind of comes up in the news in British Columbia to do with trapping, uh, and this Fisher issue has come up, uh, and as you know, the Narwhal media uh, outlet has covered several, several stories on it, how is this how is this reflecting socially on trappers because usually these types of stories tend to paint trappers as you know as the bad people and it's like well if there's any concern about the fisher population then just stop all trapping don't trap martin don't trap beavers like they shouldn't you shouldn't trap at all if there's any any concerns what what's the vibe socially and in the media that you're have been exposed to with this this Fisher red listing, I think specifically to do with the Fisher, we haven't had a whole lot of negativity. Um, you know, directly. Yeah. You know, uh, yes, I, probably there are some people that are saying, "Yeah, just stop trapping them. We don't care. It's it's not a big deal. They shouldn't be trapping anyway." But it's, I don't think that has really been a shift because of this particular issue. Um, that's an overall bigger picture that's been that way for a number of years now um, and I don't think it's really different than certain aspects of hunting I, I think that lots of people support deer hunting they support moose hunting and they support elk hunting but when it comes to cougar hunting bear hunting there, there's a different paradigm shift there because not everybody realizes that you can eat cougar or that you can eat black bear and and lots of us harvest them for that and you know, we can still harvest, we can harvest black bear and ship the uh, pelts to market. But um, pretty sure actually it's all the British um, around the queen. All those, all those big British hats are bear hides. Um, yeah, which Pete is trying to get him to switch over to favor. Yep. <laughs> There's a, a big campaign going on. That. That's a whole nother podcast. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely... There's definitely issues of speciesism, you know, in, in the province. And we've seen that where, you know, one social media picture with a wolf and it's like, you know, 
people are petitioning the minister to close all wolf trapping in the province. I mean, to be fair, like the narwhal story that kind of like broke on this, their angle on the fisher was like, look, here's another example where BC's logging too much and we don't have an endangered species act for the province of BC. That That's kind of where they, you know, I felt they were coming at it from. Uh, they did talk a little bit about, you know, trapping and uh, the restrictions and stuff on it, but they seem to cover it reasonable in the sense of they were targeting, you know, the big drivers being being logging and 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 more strict regulations, I guess. Yeah, I didn't actually catch that article, so I, I you know, but overall I didn't. It was, it was a couple years ago, yeah. yeah. yeah so I, I, I think that it's, you know, when we point to trappers, the ones that started this with the complaint to the Forest Practices Board, you know, we, we've been dealing with this for a while. You know, trappers have had this concern. And it's interesting because I, I come across this a lot. You know, um, a couple of years ago, we celebrated 75 years in the BC Trappers Association. And I went back and read a lot of old articles. And it feels like track, trappers have been fighting this brick wall for the last 50 or 75 years of habitat loss. We've been fighting and yeah. arguing for this for forever, saying we have to do better. And, and not that we want to stop, but we just have to do better. You know, lots of our members work in the forest industry. So I think they have an understanding of saying we can do better on the landscape and the way we harvest um, that is supportive for species and, and you know, has turnover. I, I you know, I, I think that there's good examples that moose and deer and things like that thrive under clear cut conditions if they're not 20 miles wide and 20 miles long, you know, um, <laughs> that new habitat and yeah. that over, you know, that new growth coming in and it supports things like beavers, you, you know, the turnover of um, deciduous trees that come into an early succession forest is good for some species like beaver. And, and you get to that old mature forest that doesn't have any deciduous left in it. If it's all pine and cedar, doesn't support beaver living around that pond. So, you know, a, a bit of everything is, yeah. is better. And, and, you know, we've been fighting just to have, you know, better recognition for, for all things on the landscape than just the trees. And that's, that's the mentality that's killed us, I think in the past or, or put us down this, this yeah, big rabbit hole and, we have to climb out of that's pretty deep right now. And, and clearly in this province, you know, logging has the biggest footprint on the landscape as far as impact to wildlife habitat at, in, in all wildlife groups, it just, if you've just flown over the province, like you, you, it's not like you're looking at a mine every, you know, every two or 300 yards on the landscape, but you are looking at a cut block that's, you know, every couple hundred yards down the road, there's another one, right? So um, big, big impacts to, especially fur bears, you know, that's, the, the def I think one of the values. Definitely is, but in the same token, I, if I look at my trap line and the way it was washed out, I have to be thankful that they're still in there doing some sort of industrial development or logging, or they would never rebuild those roads. Yeah, no, that's, mm -hmm. that's so, true. You know, there is a, yeah, you are, you are pretty, yeah. you are pretty dependent on that yeah. as well. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything from trap from the trapping community of like a complete, like stop all 
other resources on the landscape and just let us operate on it. It's more like you just said a few minutes ago, just do it better. And we can help you do it better when it comes to fur bear habitat if we just have the chance to be in the in the design stage. Yeah, that's that's exactly it, I think. And everybody better for the future if we now, do what it that is, way, right? And I think it, it all species, you know, and that's what you know, Martin might be a keystone species that we talk about a lot or or fisher, but I, I think it also kind of says if we do it in a way that benefits those species, then a lot of other species will benefit as well. And it goes up the food chain or, or, or the ecosystem oh, as a whole helps. It, yep. right? I mean, I guess that's at least what I talk to people when I teach the trappers course. I say when I took it, I had been a hunter for most of my life. And I thought, what else can I learn in three days? And I walked away saying I'm a totally different hunter than I used to be because I don't just pay attention to moose and deer tracks <laughs> yeah. anymore. I'm paying attention to the squirrels I'm seeing, the marten tracks I'm seeing, the rabbits. I'm paying attention to everything that's on the landscape because if I don't see any of the little stuff, I guarantee I'm not going to see the big stuff either. Yep. Yep. No, and, and true. And that's one of the values. It's kind of one of the reasons why I got into trapping is is I, I want to use that as the vehicle to understand a whole guild of wildlife out there that as a hunter I haven't typically... Like I've appreciated, but I have not got dialed into. And and that that's a really important thing to me is I want to be dialed in for these things. So, you know, I can be the person that goes, well, you know, <laughs> you know, if you do that, you might think that, oh, no, the Martin will still cross, you know, that clear cut and go use the riparian area. And I might be like, based on my experience of being in there for the last five years, no, they won't. They're not going to cross that opening because they might get picked off by a horned owl. So there's five, six, seven, eight years where the marten are not going to want to cross that clear cut to get to the riparian habitat. You know, like it's it's that type of finite getting dialed in on on all of these wildlife that I find truly fascinating by getting into trapping to be able to then turn around and advocate for those species from a conservation perspective because you do know them, you know, at such a nuanced level. And I don't think there's scientists that know fur bears as well as trappers do. No, and I, I think we have examples of that when they were trying to study fisher and, and where they're putting their equipment and we're saying, you're not going to catch any fisher there. You're, you're going to go over here or you got to do something different. And they use, they need to use a scientific method. They have to you know, put up a grid and say, okay, this is, you know, we're going to put a sample site here and, and every so many sample sites so we can do that. But I also, as a trapper, I don't think how good I am. And I, I you know, it doesn't matter how good I, if I'm the best trapper in the province and you give me unlimited time to trap, I can't catch every species that's out there or every one of this particular species. I, I can't probably clear a hundred percent of the Martin off of my trap line, no matter how good I am. So to think a scientist yeah. can go out there and detect every fissure that's on the landscape, I don't think that's possible. I, I think there's still some measure of uncertainty when they do those studies to say, well, okay, we, we detected this many fissure, but there's probably a 10 or 20% extra on the land base that they didn't account for, didn't catch in their studies. Um, but, you know, did you detect all the places you should have detected, right? I mean, um, you know, 
it's probably more relatable to a regular hunter to say there's some spots that you go hunting that you've never seen a moose and you're never going to see one in the future probably same thing's going to happen with a lot of your fur bears there's just certain parts of the landscape those animals won't traverse or won't be part of yeah yeah no true so what what's your what's your kind of gut feeling with the situation with the fisher population in the central interior bc right now um does it warrant being closed everywhere to trappers does it warrant and and taking into consideration the amount that are caught does it warrant trappers modifying tens of thousands of boxes or rebuilding them with the exclosure plates for fishers on on them what what's your what's your feeling certainly i say yes i think it deserves to be closed right now until we can get to that science down okay. I, I i don't dispute that i think yes until we can have a, a agreed upon population i think it's wise to keep it closed um i, I think the bycatch scenario right now I, I think the cost involved for the trappers to reduce that bycatch um is a pretty drastic cost to an uncertain population number or uncertainty as to actually how how bad we would affect the population. I, I think that is still pretty uncertain. Um, and that there's no other changes being made to the other industries. So are we, if we modify some of the other industries, maybe we won't need to, to reduce our bycatch. If the population is as bad as they say it is, are there other things that could be done by other industries to offset that? bycatch and not that we want bycatch maybe there are some other simpler means we can avoid the bycatch too I, I think we're kind of jumping on to something here that uh, maybe there are other ways that trappers can be better educated to prevent bycatch right okay okay no I think that's a really that's a really good point there is uh, is what what changes are being made to the other industries you know, prim primarily logging, um, if there's going to be changes or restrictions on, on trapping, right? And I, I don't know what your read is, but I've always felt that the government's apprehension of bringing in endangered species legislation in the province, which was a promise in the 2016 election, I believe, that never came to fruition is because then the legal mechanisms were there for the forest industry to have to change if fisher numbers drop below a certain threshold or whatever but without the legislation the fisher can be listed listed as red listed and it's a concern and it might be extirpated and there's going to be some more studies done but there isn't really a legal mechanism to say a red listing equals a reduction of x amount of logging like it just doesn't work like that so do you think government is shied away from endangered species protection because of the potential impacts to the big industries i would think so i i don't think it's a you know, I, I wasn't really involved or following it that much, but I, I think it makes sense. I, I, I just don't see why you wouldn't otherwise. Um, I, I am yeah. hopeful that our change in how we manage the forest and the management plans and all that sort of stuff will take that into account now and be a little more 
under public scrutiny. So if, if trappers bring up the red listed species or, or Martin of concern in that area, that that will become a broader topic of managing the forest and, and finding a way forward to say, um, it's okay to harvest some, but not as bad as you have. And, and, and I think, you know, when you went back to that landscape watershed level planning, there's lots of watersheds out there that are severely impacted by industry. And there's others that are not. And I think it's okay if it's over time, you know, it, it um, you know, you don't, you don't cut a, a, a clear cut next to another one until the first one hits um, a free to grow or pass free to grow, but, you know, more to a closed canopy stage. And you, you kind of six, you know, plan the, plan the ecosystem, plan the yeah, whole but- watershed to say you're going to log it over the next 30 years and each time you can do a little block over the next 30 years versus right now it's kind of like and i remember when we started the pine beetle the whole push was we got to get these trees cut and get them out of here because they're going to rot and they're going to be no good to us anymore so let's log it well i remember at the start they talked about having less than five years to get those trees out of the bush once the pine beetle killed them I think we're 10, 15, 20 years in, and we're still taking some of those pine beetle trees and taking them to a mill and using them. So that was a push by the industry to give us a whole bunch of trees that um, they didn't have to take as quick as they, maybe they they didn't know at the time. I, you know, I I would buy that as a, as a proper scientific thing. They didn't know at the time how long those trees would last and be viable, but are in that, that industry also ramped up to take that supply in that timber fiber and now we're having to scale back because that fiber is not there. And they're talking about the industry closing down mills. Well, you ramped it up to take that fiber and now we're, we're, we're scaling it back to what should be normal. And they're complaining about that, right? Closing mills because of that. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, cool. And interesting subject. So I, from what I'm hearing from you, I think just kind of wrapping up is you, you have a pretty positive outlook where all of this is headed with the Fisher, um, the Fisher case here, the, the, the situation, like you talked about, you know, the, the provincial and regional round tables, you have a, uh, a science work, Fisher workshop, you know, bringing different people to the table. It sounds like people are willing to get together, uh, and talk and, and you, you just, you seem optimistic that this is going to head in the right direction and maybe um, maybe address some of the concerns the association had, uh, you know, at, at the start. Is that is that a good read? You're 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 hopeful where things are headed. Certainly, I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say whether the members of the Trappers Association are totally behind me there. I would say probably some are, <laughs> but I think yes. There's a lot of. Uh, cautious optimism i guess because so many people in our association have been fighting this for many many years and it hasn't changed oh god i, I yeah. you know i i do think that yes i'm encouraged by by government is discussing it with us we're um you know at the table with those discussions so maybe we can frame this discussions a little bit where you know we agreed to have a scientific meeting so i i you know workshop so i, I think that yes i'm encouraged that change is coming i'm encouraged that together for wildlife is still on the table I, I thought that was kind of an encouraging thing that together for wildlife was started by a previous government and a previous uh, uh 
party, right? And that, that spanned multi-parties and continued to be part of government's mandate going ahead to keep Together for Wildlife going and, and kind of head to those um, key principles that Together for Wildlife has. So it's not been near as quick as we would like to have. Um, you know, I'm not happy that the FERPA changes may take five years to come into place. You know, lots of negativity there, but I, I, I am hopeful that potentially the trappers of the future have a little better chance than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I think. Oh, that's good. I mean, it's good. That's, you know, good, good news. And, you know, I'll be following this story along like I do all, all the other ones and um, through our different, you know, media outlets and, and what we do will definitely keep people informed of new developments and changes. Um, probably maybe the first one that we're going to see is potentially some regulation changes for trapping for this coming season uh, that's related to fisher trapping in in the, the central interior bc so i'll let folks know there you and i are always in contact we'll be sharing what information you can that i can share back to folks and keep um keep this story going yep yep we'll see where it goes we're hopeful that uh you know but at least we uh can move ahead in a legitimate way and a and a at the table and i think that is the important part we're at the table we're discussing yeah. it we can help frame the decisions as we move ahead that's that's uh important key today is is to be able to work together on the issues and and figure it out that way right i think it's uh well, a little, little frustrating that you kind of had to insert yourselves a little bit to kind of get some of this stuff to unfold, but um, good on you for, for doing that. That's, uh, I think, the value of the job you do as the president of the association and um, what direction your membership and your board gives you on what issues are important. And, um, and I, I feel like you've you've driven a bit of change here in, in a positive direction. Um, and and positive, I believe, for fishers, as well as, like you said, for future trappers. Because if there's fundamental flaws that more people start to recognize in the science, the models that were used, maybe some of the source terms, the estimates and stuff, that, that those things are only gonna harm fishers if we're not you know, as accurate as possible. So I commend you guys for, for and gals for putting the resource first for putting fur bears first and you know the fact that you said you know you feel that we need to be backed away from fisher trapping right now i think just speaks testament to trappers and they will always put the fur bears first well, over, over themselves i think it's good to say that about any hunter fisherman or conservationist i think we're all the same i, I think if you provide the proper data to a science you know, a hunter, a fisherman or whatever, and tell them this is what's going on, that that's going to be what's going to happen. They're going to make that decision and say, yes, I'm not going to hunt anymore. I'm not going to, you know, I, I think that whole um, cow moose project, uh, you know, that was an example that was a hunter led program that tried to educate people on, on, on what's better. Um, and, you know, lots yeah. of, you know, wild sheep society, that, you know, their members put a lot of money and effort into to wild sheep populations and studying them and making sure they're healthy and putting their dollars where their mouth is to support that. And, and I think, you know, we've got that with, with uh, some mule deer stuff, you know, all, all hunters and conservationists are the same way. I, you know, we're, 
specific to Fisher, but I think in the bigger picture, everybody's the same and saying, you know, if we can come together and agree upon the science and the science tells us we have to stop harvesting in some way, we'll all go for it if that's if that's the right answer. Yep. No, absolutely. And as long as we have a plan to, like you said before, get up to a target population level. So and I thought that was really good. Early on in Together for Wildlife, I was approached by a biologist and he said that to me. He said he was approached to come up with a target for a species population. So, you know, in the past, biologists okay. always kind of come to the table more saying, tell us how many moose are out there, tell us how many deer are out there. And so that wasn't what he was tasked with. He said, tell me what we should target for a population in the landscape. And so I thought that was a real shift to say, that's the way we should be thinking about oh, stuff, right? We, we should be looking at the, the overall picture, not saying how many moose are there. What's a population of moose that we need to have on the landscape so we can have viable harvest for ourselves and first nations right what what do we need to have a viable harvest and how much is that harvest and i think that's the same thing with fisher we just need to have a number on a target to say we want a targeted population that will allow us to have a sustainable harvest and monitoring to make sure we stay there and we adjust if we need yeah. to if we get below the sustainable harvest level we stop and if we go above we can harvest more and i think that's all we want for all species is to just have a, a sustainable harvest yeah yeah no for sure hey tim uh thanks so much for all this great information on uh on the fishers and and everything that you guys are doing i uh, really appreciate your time coming back on the show yeah thank you maybe one of these days we can get in person have an actual beer no it's uh that would mm -hmm. be that would be awesome. Anytime you're uh, coming Kootenay way, just shoot shoot me a message. Uh, I'm I'm usually around unless it's hunting season, and likewise if I'm going to the coast unless it's trapping season. But um, <clears throat> yeah, and also you said you're coming up to the end of your term as president at the end of uh, this month. Um, you're standing for re-election to be back on the executive, but no longer as the president. So. Man, just thanks for all your years of, um, of dedication and probably putting your own life on the back burner a little bit to stand up for trappers and trapping and fur bear conservation in BC. Yeah. Appreciate everything you've Thank done. Thank you. Cool. Take it away, Curtis. All right, on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. After this one, I think we should uh, we should get them to make the Fisher edition, not the, Fisher the fishing edition. edition, but the Fisher edition. Yeah, and, the, uh, the Toyota truck that looks like a big Fisher. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. We'll produce but, uh, hundreds of them and increase the population. Yeah, sightings <laughs> will go up. <laughs> well, put five bucks from every sale into Fisher Conservation. Everybody be happy. That would be there so cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, wouldn't yeah. that be so cool? Totally. But yeah, as always, big thanks to Alpine for their continuing support of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. Also, make sure you head over and check out the Hunter Conservationist community over on Patreon. We've got uh, the Hunters Underground podcast over there, some older episodes of the Hunting Diaries podcast, 
um, good discussion board. You know, I pop in there every once in a while and read and people are definitely engaged with each other and we engage with those folks as much as we can too. It's a cool little community that we're getting rolling there. So if you haven't checked it out, make sure you do. And for those folks that already are members of our patron page, we appreciate the support. And lastly, I know it's well into turkey season by the time this podcast comes out, but... A couple weeks left. A couple weeks left. If you haven't got a turkey by the time this comes out, now would be a great time to go and learn how to turkey hunt in the middle of the season with the wild turkey hunting masterclass that we have available on our website. Get some game seven tied up overtime luck to yeah, take one, it. One or, one or two weekends through. left in turkey yeah. season. Yeah, Get down to the wire. So no time like the present to learn how to turkey hunt after you've spent all season struggling. Like I'm sure we have. I'm sure at this point there's been a couple turkeys that have blown our blown our setups and probably missed a couple turkeys and given us the proverbial some... bird finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure probably... there's been a few of those, so cool. Yeah. Thanks folks. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it again. Hey, last last thing. Uh give folks a perspective if you put a male martin and a male fisher side by side tell us what the size comparison difference would be in whatever terms length weight i'd say a martin's or a fisher's probably about three times the size of a martin i would think um i think they go around 20-ish pounds um just not not quoting numbers don't quote me on those but yeah about well, three times as big as as big as a martin. Basically, a a big house cat is a is a fisher size. Okay. Wow. Wow. Little little longer, little like a little bigger bone. Yep. So yeah. More more. I can completely understand. <laughs> I can completely understand why that one trapper said that uh, he built those exclusion boxes and the fisher would come along and just try to tear them apart in order to get the bait inside. So the Martin just goes through the hole. The fisher wants to tear the whole box apart. So, wow, that's quite a, quite a size difference. Appreciate it. Yes. I guess I should, I should throw in the plug too. So if you want to take the trappers course, bctrappers.ca, we'd love to have more members too, if you so desire, or if you're a member out there and you haven't, haven't uh, renewed your membership, please do so. We uh, appreciate that support as well. Absolutely. You guys produce a great magazine. I love it. I'll pass that up. So even if you, even if you aren't a trapper, um, join and get that magazine. You learn so much. It's a, it's, it's a really, really good publication and getting good, um, print magazines nowadays that are not completely slammed with advertising. Um, I commend you guys on producing a really, uh, classy top-notch magazine. So there's, there's a benefit of joining us for easy trappers. Cool, man. Thanks. And uh, hey, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode.